Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Today we'll be speaking to Earl Dresner ACS. He's a cinematographer who's come from the commercial world, produced amazing commercials people would have seen in Australia and possibly overseas. And I came to know him through the production of The Legend of Ben Hall as he came to the table to offer to, to do second unit work. And I hadn't known him at the time, but I checked out his work and I was like, wow, this guy, I'm, I felt like that he was actually a lot more experienced than I was as this was my first feature film. So it was really good to have him on board because I did really want to have someone on set that I could really trust and know that their quality work will achieve what needs to be done for the second unit work. So I've had to actually split this episode up into two because Earl uh, was so generous in sharing so much information about his productions that he's worked on and his experiences. So this is the first part of his interview. Welcome to the show, Earl. Tell us a little bit about yourself as a cinematographer and how you're involved in the industry. Uh, Thanks, Pete. Thanks very much for having me. Um, Yeah, I've been involved in the industry for uh, coming up to 20 years now and um, it's gone really quickly, but, you know, started out you know, not knowing what I wanted to do and like a lot of people just trying to find a foot in the door and managed to, um, you know, work my way up and start eventually start shooting and, you know, mainly came up through commercials. So I had a lot of experience both in the camera department and then shooting commercials and um, then eventually took a little while but made the transition into drama and uh, now doing a bit of everything, which is which is great, but, um, you know, it's trying to uh, focus on... on shooting the best drama I can. Excellent. And uh, I guess uh, when you began and, and you just mentioned that you obviously didn't know what you wanted to, to do, how, how did you end up wanting to be a cinematographer or why did you choose to be that? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, you know, it's, you read a lot of stuff from DPs and they always say, oh, my dad gave me a Super 8 when I was six years old. Saying, but I, I didn't have any of that kind of stuff. I finished school and had no idea what I wanted to do and ended up deciding to go to university and do what they called a Bachelor of Media, pretty much because it sounded interesting. Um, I was even interested in things like radio and stuff like that. And um, in the second year at uni, we had to do electives, and I did sound, actually, for the first semester. And in the second semester, I thought, I'll try film and TV. That looks like a bit of fun. And it was weird. I pretty much fell in love with it straight away and just was right into the cameras. And, you know, we were shooting on Canon XL1s, I think they were called, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, but was right into it, and then everyone wanted to be a director or a producer, and I just found myself being really keen on on being the the cameraman or the DP, and you know, shot a few sh- little shorts and little mini docos there, and came out going, all right, I've worked it out. This is what I want to do, and so it was, um, yeah, it was a kind of a weird experience that happened reasonably suddenly, um, but then I, you know, very quickly got a passion for it, and you know, pushed on from there. When you started doing the the camera work and things like that, did you get an exposure to the, to, I guess, the really more intense version of what a cinematographer is as far as lighting, or was it you were doing small projects and then then and you slowly got up to the next ones, or how how was that sort of, you know, like, I guess the exposure between you know someone who just shoots you know straight footage, no lighting kind of thing, to to then suddenly jump up and having to do like commercial, which is very intricate. 
Yeah, it was a, it was a, I was kind of really fortunate in a way. So I, I finished uni and I was like, okay, what do I do next? And, you know, I, I always say I learned more the first day I stepped onto a film set than I did in the three years at uni. But, you know, I got the bug for it there. I managed to get a work experience at a company, a commercial production company in Sydney called Film Graphics. And I um, went in there for a week of work experience and pretty much just hung out with the guy. They had their own camera department, so all their own camera gear, 35mm film cameras, 16mm, you know, a whole bunch of lenses and all, you know, all the gear. And they had a little studio uh, in Sydney where they kept all the gear and you know, did a few little shoots. And I uh, did a bit of work experience there, didn't do any shoots, just kind of hung out with the guy who ran the camera department. And then um, he eventually got me onto a job and the first job I ever did, first films that I ever went to was this massive uh, commercial for a, I think, a Singapore telecom company uh, directed by David Deneen, who was kind of known as the, the one of the best commercial directors around. And, you know, so I got thrown in the deep end on that, you know, just doing, being a camera attachment and doing video split and things like that. But I saw, you know, from then and then continuing to work with those guys, I was lucky enough and that was at the end of 99 and then into 2000 and they did a whole bunch of ads for the Sydney Olympics with all big sports stars and so I got to I started working with them a lot and I eventually got a full-time job with them so I was running their camera department so I not only got to play with all the gear and learn how to use all the gear and experiment with that but I was on big commercial film sets all the time with you know with the best DPs in Australia and the best crews and the biggest jobs so I kind of got to be able to watch a lot of it, be able to see, you know, big lighting setups, big camera setups, cranes, all the toys and things like that. And I got to, while working, you know, my way up through the camera department, I was kind of lucky enough to work on the bigger jobs. So I got to um, see these guys doing what they did and try to learn a lot from them. And meanwhile, at the same time, I was there shooting my own little stuff. The guy I took over from in the camera department, he became a director at Film Graphics. And while he trained me up, we spent the first year trying to get him a showreel. So we'd go out and shoot little, you know, spec ads and you know, music videos and things like that to try and get him something to show on his reel. Uh, so, you know, that was, you know, small bits of lighting, but not very much. A lot of a lot of just trying to do a lot with nothing. So I was kind of learning that part. And then I was on set on these big sets, you know, watching other people do the big stuff. So I think when I then progressed to start shooting more and more, um, you know, of course, they always started as smaller things with less money and less resources, but I'd at least seen how to do the bigger stuff. You know, So when a job came up that was a studio job or, you know, green screen or things like that, I'd seen it done a little bit before. But, you know, like anybody else, you still have to kind of, you know, go in there and try your best and you do what you know and, and learn on the job to a certain extent. Was there a, a moment there that you just went, wow, this is it and something that you really impacted you? Yeah, I think I knew pretty much from the time I started uh, with film graphics, I, I kind of was pretty focused and knew what I wanted to do. And like I said, uh, Jono, the guy who'd come before me, he'd become a director. But for some reason, I kind of knew that I was more interested in being a cinematographer than a director. And, you know, I was really, really lucky at film graphics because I got to, when we weren't shooting these big jobs, I got to sit in the studio with a bunch of camera gear, you know, and I'd do things like I'd see a new film stock come out and I'd call the guy from Kodak and I'd say, oh, the directors at film graphics are really interested to know what this new film stock is like and he'd deliver five rolls to the studio the next day. So I'd shoot tests on the rolls and I'd play around with that and I'd, you know, we'd work, I'd work all day in the studio and then go out at night with mates to a car park and shoot, you know, 
whatever, short films and all sorts of stuff. So um, I really fell in love with it then. And, you know, I was also really lucky because if a director, especially Jono, but if another director of film graphics had a little low-budget job or a love project they wanted to do, they'd come up and say, oh, I want to shoot this thing. Do you want to come and shoot it for me or help me with it? So I got to shoot a bit of stuff. I got to get a, you know, a very bad but a bit of a reel together. And by the time I left film graphics after three years, um, I I was a you know a focus puller, a first AC, and continued to do that. But I also had a reel, and also got you know kept shooting you know sort of lower budget jobs, and yeah, I just kept going from there. And I just always loved it. There was always something new, you know, you know what it's like. There's always a new location or a new actor or a different filmmaker or director or production company. So there's always something new and always something different. And I was always learning. You know, that's the thing I loved about it the most. Every job I was doing, I was always learning. You know, when I was started out, it was the emerge of digital was starting to emerge and that was a really interesting time. And, you know, I'd have somebody call me up and say, oh, we've got a job, but we want to shoot it on the Panavision Genesis camera. Have you have you used that before? And I'd go, oh, yeah, of course I've used it. And then I'd call Panavision and go, I need a lesson on the Genesis quick. How do you use it? So it was constantly, it was a constantly a learning process and, you know, it was scary at times, but you kind of had to dive in and, and hope for the best. So you mentioned earlier that you'd started in commercial. How are they different to your in your experience with between narrative or drama and commercial? Yeah, it's a really it's an interesting question and you know something people talk about a lot and you know I know when I was really always been keen to do drama and the years and years that I spent shooting commercials trying to move into drama it was you know I heard a lot about oh, the schedules are so different and the money's so different and it's a completely different thing and, you know, if you're either a commercial DP or a drama DP and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I think, you know, in the in the 90s and probably even the early noughties, commercials uh, were quite different to they are now. They were very, very slick. They were, you know, very much every frame, you know, and every frame of every shot was, you know, this, this perfectly set up thing. You know, we used to do commercials where, we'd shoot three shots in the morning and we'd shoot the pack shot in the afternoon. You know, not me shooting, that was back in the days when I was assisting. And, you know, so I think back then it was a, it was a very different, it was a very different thing. But, you know, I've found that commercials have changed a lot. You know, we do a lot of commercials now which are, you know, doco style or they're, you know, very natural light. They're, you shoot quick, you shoot 30 setups in a day. You know, there's not enough time, not enough money. There's, there's a lot of different expectations, I think, even production companies and directors and producers and clients and agencies are also looking for something new and different from commercials. They're looking for something a lot more real and a lot more, you know, not the big slick overlit kind of things that they used to be. So when I'm in eventually managed to transition into drama and after hearing a lot of people say, oh, it's going to be really difficult because, you know, it's not like commercials, I kind of got in there and was like, you know what, it's actually not that different. You know, the biggest differences for me is that, when you're shooting commercials, it's all about these little moments. You're always trying to find that one or two second beat, you know. So you're either trying to do something really, really specific and get it perfect or you're shooting 10, 15, 20 minutes of footage just trying to grab that little one second of magic. You know, so your, your mindset is a lot about, you know, telling this story in 30 seconds or 60 seconds and you're kind of focused on we just need that little bit, you know, to work right. Then, of course, you've got the client and agency and the product kind of part. And with drama, for me, it's, you know, it's, it's more about this big overall, you know, beast that you're trying to tame and manage throughout a process. 
you know. But the interesting thing for me is since going and shooting some TV shows and a film, I now go back and shoot commercials and I feel actually feel a lot more free to kind of experiment and to try things and, you know, I kind of realise that the, the visual side, I mean, the, the visual side of both is obviously important, but in a commercial, you know, a lot of the time there's no dialogue. It is all just visuals and music or something like that. So the visuals play a huge part in a commercial. But in when I'm shooting drama, I'm always very aware that, you know, as much as I know I can really contribute to the piece and what I'm doing is really important and making a difference, I also know that the script and the story and the performance is is what matters and I always want to make sure that I don't get in the way of that, that I support that and I don't, you know, distract from that. So I think there's there's little different, you know, approaches and mindsets to the two, but ultimately they're not they're not really as different as I, you know, as I always thought it was told. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have experience from that part. I'm, I guess I'm, you could say I'm more documentary shooter and turned drama, so the long hours I was used to. <laughs> hanging around, waiting for the right time to capture things and all that stuff. So, Yeah, it's right. You know, and you, you read a lot of people, you know, Roger Deakins started out in documentaries. He's, you know, my, probably my hero as a cinematographer. And, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, learning to, you know, do a lot with a little, learning to react to situations. And honestly, I think in commercials these days, those skills are really relevant as well. And there's a lot of, a lot of commercials I shoot, which are, you know, these, family lifestyle commercials are usually for banks or insurance companies or something like that and they're just all about you know happy living and a lot of those commercials are throw a camera on your shoulder or on an easy rig or something like that and have a bunch of kids and parents on a beach and you literally end up you know you're running around chasing them for half an hour trying to find these little moments you know it is it's about you know trying to find the night the best angle that works with the light and works with the reflection and you know, find the moments on their faces, and I mean, there's a lot of a lot of that stuff in commercial work now. With a commercial, do you have a project that that you really hold to your heart that you, you got to really experiment and take it to the next level that maybe the agent didn't really put that in in writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's a couple of kind of examples which are so so very different to each other. I mean, I did a commercial which was a kind of a weird commercial because it wasn't a straight-up commercial. It was this kind of slightly longer piece, almost promotional piece for Lexus. And it was, they basically come up with a really bizarre concept where they made, they designed a car or the body of a car and they put all this special paint and stuff all over it and the car could glow in the dark and it could even, you could, they could even set it up that it, um, it reacted to, I mean, I'm trying to remember if they did it for real or not, but in the story of the ad, the car reacted to the driver's heartbeat. So the faster the heartbeat of the driver went, the more faster the car would pulse. You know, and that was a really interesting experience for me because it was a, you know, it was a big commercial. The references were these massive European car ads at night. It was at night on a racetrack. You know, it was a perfect example of one of those ads where you go, shit, I've done a couple of car ads, but I've never done anything like this before. A car that glows in the dark, shooting at night on a racetrack. There was all this stuff. So, and it was also, you know, very low budget for what for what they were trying to do. So, that was one where, you know, it was a real project and a real, you know, trying to work out how we can make this work, how we can get this done. Realizing that you can't actually light a glow in the dark car. You actually have to make sure there's no light hitting it, and then trying to find a camera and a lens that'll photograph, you know, and expose expose for that kind of thing. So. I mean, that was a really interesting one. It, the agency, especially the creative director of the agency, was very heavily involved and, you know, it was um, 
it certainly was one where it was more an exercise in trying to work out how to how to make this thing work and how to get it done and try to work out all the you know the little quirks and things that we could and couldn't do and make it work and it it was one night, you know, at Eastern Creek Raceway in Sydney. It was it was huge, but you know, it was it was a great experience because we managed to pull it off. You know, and I remember driving home with the sun in my eyes down the freeway, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, saying, "Going, wow, we actually managed to do it." You know, and it and it turned out really well. So that was a kind of a tricky logistical one. Um, and then you know, then there's a lot of other commercials where you know you it's more about like I was talking before about these kind of bank ads and insurance ad, where it's more about you know, families and different situations and slice of life and, and it's more about trying to find things. You know, some a lot of the times now they're not real or they're non-actors and it's about, you know, trying to find moments and trying to, you know, capture something that's supposed to be really real and really emotional and supposed to, you know, engage with people. Um, I did an ad for CUA Bank Insurance a few years ago and it was in Queensland and Brisbane and Stradbroke Island and, it was all about that. It was all real people and trying to find little moments. You know, and there was, one of the scenes was a pregnant woman, real pregnant woman, who was just standing in front of a, a mirror, rubbing her belly. And, you know, we were just, you know, shooting that. And then, you know, she, the director starts talking to her and she got really emotional and started crying. And, you know, I remember I was looking through a doorway and I just kind of just walked straight in and got in tight on her face. And it was a really beautiful moment. It was a really beautiful moment between me and her and, you know, and all of us and, you know, kind of an unexpected thing. And, you know, things like that are beautiful, whether it's a commercial or a film or documentary, whatever it is. You know, I think it's about trying to find those kind of moments. Um, but, you know, you talk about kind of the unexpected and, and things developing and changing. The biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I learned shooting commercials and have taken that through into drama is about the relationship with the director. And, you know, I think I used to, in my early days, I used to think that my job was just to do whatever the director said you know, and do whatever he asked for, she asked for, and, and they thought that, you know, a particular type of lighting was better or this was better or that was better. Yep, that's fine. I'll just do that. And it took me a long time to to realise and learn that, you know, just like anything else in this business, nobody knows everything and nobody, you know, the reason they employ other people and have other crew members is for their expertise and their creativity. And so learning to, you know, be able to, you know, not in an aggressive way or an argumentative way, but being able to challenge a director and being able to have discussions and go, you know what, I hear what you're saying, but here's another option or here's an idea that might work better or no, I really feel strongly about this. I think that's one of the most important things that I've learned and one of the things that, you know, as soon as I started doing it, you know, I'd get directors saying, oh, great, oh, that's so good. I'm, I love it when, you know, I love it when the DP, you know, disagrees with me or challenges me or, you know, and they'd say after seeming like they knew everything, I'd say something like that and they'd come back and go, oh, you know what, I don't know, you know, I just, that was just an idea, you know, I didn't know if it was the best idea or not. I'm so glad that you, you came up with a better idea. That's way better, you know. So, you know, that, that was a big learning experience as well and that's when I learned to, you know, not just look at a storyboard and go, right, that's, that's the frames we're shooting and, you know, that storyboard looks like a 40 mil, you know, with this angle, just to take them as a guide, talk to the director, you know, learn as much as you can about the project and then, you know, not be afraid to bring bring yourself to it as well. Mm, yeah, I think it's, I mean, obviously the relationship's important that you hopefully the meetings you had before you go to shooting that these directors are open to that kind of um, attitude. Um, and I think I've never really had experience where people aren't. Um, so most 
good creative people tend to be fairly confident in what they they know so they they're pretty easy to approach but yeah I, I do agree that it, there's a level where um, that our job is like we've spent so much time you know looking at the project on in, in a visual sense that sometimes obviously we will have other visual visual ideas that might not, not it won't conflict what the director's vision is but it will enhance it and you know so you have to bring it up because you go on the day of the shoot you know and the film that we got to work on together you know a couple of times that's happened where I just said to Matt no nah, no nah, don't be afraid it's okay it's going to work <laughs> really and that's part of it as well that's what they you know a lot of directors you know are insecure like the rest of us and sometimes they just want someone to say don't worry it's going to be great it's going to be good you know and the film I just did there was a few occasions like that you know the director said he was unbelievably prepared knew exactly what he wanted you know was had was a real all-round director, knew a lot about tech, knew a lot about camera and lenses and lighting, you know, knew a lot, you know, real big into story, wrote it as well. Um, but there were times where he'd go, oh, shit, you know, or there was something in his head that he thought it had to be this way. And, you know, for the hundred different reasons you get on a set, it didn't end up that way. And sometimes they just need us to say, it's cool. It's different, but it's it's just as good. Mm. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to do it that way. And I think for DPs, you know, it's also important that, you know, you know, when you read a script and you start visualising the film in your head and you read a line and that just evokes an image in your mind, you go, oh, my God, yep, I've got it, I can see that. And, you know, sometimes you actually also need to be flexible enough that when the director sees it differently to go, oh, okay, that's interesting, that's a different take on it. You know, so I think it's a, it's in the same with the production designer and, and everybody else. So that's, I mean, that's the beauty of this business, the collaborative nature of it where, you know, Hopefully, people will get to throw ideas in, and you and you decide what's the best one. Exactly. One of the projects that you worked on was Glitch. I wanted to touch a little bit on that because it's, I guess, it's an interesting view that you've come on on season two to shoot six episodes, and so with that, what was like as far as a visual concept? You know, like on a feature film, you work it out with a director, and and you come up with your own look. But in that case, you've come in and you've kind of had to follow. Uh, Simon Chapman's um, style, in a way. Did you have to develop that further, or did you kind of add your own thing to it, or how, how did you approach when you you know when you decided to sit down with the director, or was it one director for the entire series? No, it wasn't. We had two directors okay. on that. Um, yeah, that was a really interesting experience, actually. So you always have a setup director on a TV drama, and that was Emma Freeman, who did direct all six episodes of season one. So she came back again to kind of helm the series, but this time she was doing three and Tony Krawitz, another director, was doing three. But it was really interesting because I had shot a, was shooting a pilot with uh, with Emma for another series and while we were doing that pilot, um, obviously we'd got on pretty well and she'd um, spoken to the producers of Glitch, which was going to happen a few months later, and um, basically told them that, you know, they should chat to me about it. So uh, they asked me to come and meet them about season two so of course first thing I did I, I had watched season one but I went back and watched season one again and you know studied it basically and what I saw in season one was that I thought Simon did an amazing job I, I loved the show I loved the character drama of the show um, uh, but there were a few things in there where I saw where I thought this is these are the places where I feel that you know we could make a slight change to it some of those it was looked like, you know, when you watch something and you can almost see 
the compromise or the lack of time or the lack of money. And you go, I can see what they were trying to do and then I can, you know, and that scene was great and that scene was great. And then there's the scene that was just two mid shots because you go, there was probably, they probably had 15 minutes to shoot or so. So I saw that kind of stuff. So I kind of went in there going, I really want, one of my big things was to try really hard and, you know, and push that we have as few of those as possible, that we find a way to, you know, to keep, keep the style and the tone and the mood of the show, you know, consistent and strong. Um, and then there were a few little things like just, you know, for example, the biggest example was the way they approached um, exterior nights. And, you know, for whatever reason that was, I just kind of went in and went, went that's not the way I like to do it and I feel there's a better way to do it. Um, and then as I kind of read the script for season two, I also realised that season two was, um, I mean, season one had that sinister element to it. It had the person kind of try to track it down. But season two took that to a much higher level. There was a lot more of the science involved and the kind of this woman scientist who, you know, you think is kind of this evil person who's trying to, you know, operate on the, the people who've come back and, um, there was another, you know, this guy trying to hunt them down. So it felt like the the writing, in the writing, the tension had risen a lot. So I kind of spoke to Emma a lot about it and the producers, and I kind of thought that I thought we could just ratchet it up a notch. I thought we should take what Simon did, you know, not not mesh with it, not try and make a different show, not try and reinvent it, but I thought we could take it and then we could, you know, turn it up, turn the volume up a little bit. You know, what I always said to people was like, you tighten the screw a little bit more and suck the air out of it a little bit more. So I felt like we could, you know, go get a little bit more contrast, a little bit more mood. You know, we, and then we did, then we, you know, while maintaining the, you know, the ethos of season one, we looked a lot at the script and I read stuff in the script and it's all about being in summer in this country, Victorian town. It's always really hot. So we just thought, okay, what are the ways that, I can make the show feel moody and feel, you know, feel like a kind of a thriller, but still feel really hot and oppressive, you know. And so, you know, we tried to come up with ways, you know, that classic thing of how do you make everything look really hot and bright, or hot but not bright, you know what I mean? Not, no, don't make everything light and bright, but you, just, you know, how do you do hot and dark? You know, that that was kind of the, the challenge. So, you know, I tried to talk to production designer Patty Reardon and said, okay, well, let's put like um, – we call those slap lines on all the windows. So it can be really burning hot outside, but it's like this light's not getting into the interior. So the interiors are kind of dark. And you know, we talked a lot about trying to make things really claustrophobic and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I worked really hard to try and, you know, put, put my stamp on it and just and sort of take it another level. And also the other thing was it was co-produced by Netflix. So the tour, a lot of the talk was all about, oh, it's going to be on Netflix and it's going to be on the icon next to Stranger Things and that's what we're competing with. So I'd always remind the producers about that when they didn't have enough money for something. I thought, oh, what about sitting next to Stranger Things on the, <laughs> on the Netflix menu? But, you know, so from that perspective, I thought, you know, we needed to, we needed to take it up a notch as well. So it was, it was a really interesting, an interesting um, kind of challenge to... You know, as you know, not just taking a thing and going, okay, let's start from scratch and work out what this thing is. It was going, we kind of know what it is, but where can we take it to, to take, you know, to take it to the next level? And the other thing that I also um, thought about a lot was I ended up thinking a lot about other shows, season two of other shows, and a lot of shows where the season two was very unsuccessful compared to season one. And um, 
I was thinking about, you know, why that happens. And a lot of the time, and I thought, and I think the same thing happened with Glitch. You know, Glitch was a show that a lot of people didn't know much about. And they heard about this show, which was about people crawling out of their graves. So they thought it was going to be a show about zombies or something. And when they watched it, they went, oh, shit, this isn't a show about zombies. This is a show about relationships and real people struggling with this weird scenario of how to deal with it and how it affects their relationships. You know, and the love triangle thing between um, James and Sarah and, and um, Kate was, was, I thought, it was such a beautifully written thing. It was just like nobody's fault. No one's done the wrong thing, yet here they are stuck in this bizarre love triangle where, you know, nobody's wrong but nobody knows what to do. So I was really aware that everybody who watched season one of Glitch went in with very little expectations or no expectation and went, oh, wow, this is amazing. But I knew they'd watch season two going, oh, I love season one. I can't wait to, you know, I can't wait for season two. Season two is going to be amazing. So I kept, would always say to everybody that we need to make it so good that, you know, because everyone's expectations are higher. So we need to make sure that the production value and the way we tell the story and everything is, is you know, a lot better than season one because if it even is going to be equal to season one in how it's received. Yeah, so that was, a, that was a big challenge. I mean, another thing I did, the non, you know, non-lighting thing was I also said I want to try and keep the camera moving a lot more. There was a lot of stuff in season one where I thought probably for time and stuff like that that was quite static and I was... Like, I know it's hard, I know it's time-consuming, but, you know, for what I would do is Emma Freeman, who directed, you know, all of season one and half of season two, she, she has a really interesting um, process where she always shoots close-ups first and she loves cross-shooting. Right? And she's totally, you know, unapologetic about that. When you first meet, she says, this is how I work and this is, this is what I've done. It's been amazingly successful for her. And, it, you know, it, it's hard for a DP and you, your first instinct is, oh, shit, you know, how's that going to affect the look and all that? But what it does do is make sure that you spend most of your time you've got on the performances, on close-ups, on performances. So um, what I would do then is go, okay, we're going to be cross-shooting close-ups. And while we're doing, and a lot of scenes, you know, in TV, you're lucky if you get, you know, your two close-ups and a wide shot. So what I'd do is we'd be cross-shooting close-ups. And while we're doing that, I'd always have the grips laying a track, a dolly and track somewhere for the wide. And so every single wide shot, it'd either be a little slow push or a little left to right. So just to keep that kind of tension going, just to keep that theme of there's someone out there watching, you know, nothing's ever quite certain, nothing's, they're always kind of on the run, everything's always, you know, up in the air. So I kind of wanted to do that and, I, and it was hard because you often really stretch for time, but I pushed and pushed and pushed to the poor grips would have laid hundreds of tracks. Sometimes I'd get in and go, oh, shit, I put it in the wrong spot. <laughs> Can you relay it over there? But they'd, um, yeah, I just, I just kind of committed to it and said, I'm just one of those things I'm not going not gonna to give up on. And, um, you know, that's a, a lot of, you know, Glitch is a perfect example, but there's a lot of, especially TV drama and even this film I did where, you know, the only way to get what you need to get out of it is to just push and push and push and try really hard not to compromise because, yeah, it's a slippery slope. Mm, yeah, I know that too well. <laughs> working on super low budgets. Yeah. Um, so working with uh, two different directors, you're the the maintaining constant on on the show as as far as behind the scenes. How did you see the differences between the two directors that were doing the show? Yeah, that was a really really interesting experience and a great learning experience for me because first of all, Emma and Tony are very, very different styles. They're very different directors in the way they approach it. Um, Emma is one of those directors who is 
like ridiculously organized. She'll she'll always block a scene, always let it see what happens with the actors, but she she's um very, very no well prepared is not the right word. She's kind of she just she has a plan and she comes in with a pretty clear plan and she knows the shots she needs for each scene. And you know, the scene will be blocked and Emma and I look at each other and we'll go, Yep, it's there, there, there. Do we need this? No, I probably don't need that. We'll see if we've got time, we might do that and bang it's in where Tony is uh, a director who um, kind of wants to feel his way through it a little bit more, and he, you know, he really likes to let the actors, you know, let a scene kind of work itself out. You know, do several block throughs, let the actors go. Oh, what would happen if you did this? What would happen if you did that? And kind of really find, you know, find the essence of a scene on there on set on the day. Yeah, you know? and just generally, just different styles I and mean, the approaches to actors, the approaches to camera, and all that was was really different. So that was. You know, real big challenge. And the other hard thing is that you do all your pre with the setup director. So I do four weeks of pre, which is not a lot anyway. And you know, and that's all with Emma when when you get some time with her. And Tony starts his pre the day we start shooting on shoot day one. So my pre with Tony is you know meeting at cafes or at locations on the weekend, or you know him coming to set and us talking at lunchtime. And so it's really difficult kind of fractured pre process. So that was really hard. Um, but also really interesting, you know, and I could, I could see the crew, you know, the crew get in their, in their mode, you know, they get in their rhythm and they kind of go, yep, okay, I know that, you know, we'll probably lay a track there. I know I'll have this thing ready for here. And then the new director comes on and the style's different. And you can see them kind of going second guessing a little bit and going, oh, no, it's, it's Tony now. We, we'll probably be more like this or we need to do that. So that's an interesting process. Um, and then the other one, which you mentioned, which is really interesting, and that was a huge learning thing for me, you know, as a DP, you always thinks it's, you know, as director is the, you know, the, it's their kind of vision and their project. And, you know, while we talked about having our own ideas, it's we're trying to, you know, serve their story and serve their, their vision. With TV, with multiple directors, what you find, like you said, is that you're the consistent, you're the consistency on set. Right? You're the person who's actually there from day one to the end. I mean, the production design is there the whole time, but they're not on set a lot of the time. So you find, suddenly you find you go, especially when the second block two director turns up, you're like, well, I've actually, you know, been here for a few weeks. I've, I know the visual style, but also just the general rhythm and style of the show, you know, pretty much more than they do, you know, in a sense. So, you know, you hope they've watched rushes and you've talked to them and stuff like that, but you end up finding yourself having to kind of be the guardian of the, of the tone and the look and the style of the show. And that's really interesting. And it's kind of slightly weird dynamic, but, you know, I kind of felt myself growing into that with each day and with each week, and it's a, yeah, it's an odd, it was an odd experience for me. But you, you find that you sometimes need to go, nah, that's not this show. You know, that's I see what you're doing, but we haven't really been doing that, and it's different. It's it's a different message, or it's a different thing to what we you know what we've been doing. A perfect example of glitch. The other thing that we tried to introduce in season two is that the whole idea of like sucking the air out of it and tightening the screw was to do really, really wide, wide and really tight close-ups and not do a lot of mid-shots. I kind of had this, got in this thing where I wanted everything to be really tight or really wide. So, you know, when Tony comes along for block two and says, all right, let's, you know, let's do a close-up and I line up, I'm showing you with my hands, but I line up, you know, really tight, you know, almost ECU on 100 mil or something and he would be like, oh, no, let's just, can you just pull out a little bit? And then suddenly I'm just going, no, we can't. That's what we, we do. We do the, you know, the claustrophobic close-up. So, you know, and then he explain a reason for, for wanting to do that. And you go, okay, no, that's cool. I get it. But it's that 
slightly weird situation where you know you find yourself in a in a different relationship with a director than than we're generally used to. Mm, it's interesting, and and I guess with these shows, I'm assuming uh, with Glitch, it was fairly chronological, as in you shot it episode by episode, rather than trying to shoot the whole series in one. Well, you'd think so, but uh, Glitch season two was a a um, one of the more difficult scheduling wise shows because there was a lot of um, actor restrictions, yeah. and also it started out that Emma was going to do one, two, and three, and Tony was going to do four, five, and six. But because of all these actor restrictions and because of a whole bunch of other things, M ended up doing one, five, and six, and Tony did two, three, and four. And not only that, but we didn't shoot all of block two and then all of block one. We literally did like two weeks of block one, three days block two, another week and a half block one, week block two. It was like, I don't know how many times we went back and forth. So that was really, you know, unusual and even more challenging because we would shoot completely out of order. I mean, the fact is, in TV, you do it. You do do a lot of that. I mean, usually you've got blocks. Another show I did yet, we had three directors, and they did two eps each. So you're only dealing with those two eps, and it's you know it's much better. But on Glitch, when Emma's doing one, five, and six, we'd go to a location. We'd go to James and Sarah's house, and we'd shoot one with on one day. We'd go okay, two scenes from episode one, and now we're going to go and do a scene from ep five, and then we're going to do two scenes from ep six. So you know that I mean that must be really incredibly difficult for the actors. You know, it's very, it's very, I don't think on Glitch, um, probably be part, partly because of that, I think it was almost impossible to try and, you know, do a kind of a progressive look throughout the series. You know, it was almost you, the idea of trying to go, okay, we're going to start it here and we're going to move, you know, move to a darker or a desaturated or by the end, I think would have been impossible because you're, you're jumping around so much and, you know, and the schedule's so tight. So, that was hard as well. And that was hard for everyone, you know, for Emma and Tony going back and forth was difficult for the crews, you know, trying to jump between directors and things like that was, was hard. And, you know, obviously for the actors, that's, that's really tricky, but that was another, another really big challenge. And unfortunately, instead of shooting a location out for a block as well, we'd have to, we'd be going back and forth between locations quite a bit as well. So that was like extra time and things like that. Wow, wow, yeah, and that's it. It's it's interesting because I I don't know. I guess with sisters being a TV produced kind of show, that seemed more that would have been a little bit more um, stable. Right. Well, after doing Glitch, I think anything would have felt would have felt easier, you know, from those kind of things I just explained. But um, yeah, Sisters is a Channel Ten show. It's the locate. There's kind of less locations. They're all in kind of inner city Melbourne, and um, I mean, we Emma directed. Uh, set up sisters as well and we had two other directors on that um and we tried really really hard not to just go we're going to make a channel 10 show you know it it probably didn't end up exactly where we wanted to and where it started but when we did the pilot we were really trying to do something different you know and 10 at first they were unsure about it they were pretty a little bit shocked by the pilot and were like oh i don't know if it's don't know if it's us and that was kind of the point you know, I always imagined that it was 10 kind of trying to compete with Netflix, trying to go, oh, we need to get some people who are watching Netflix to come back and watch 10. Um, but ultimately, it, you know, ultimately it's always a commercial TV show. And, you know, that was an interesting learning experience for me as well, that, you know, as, as much as you can try to push it, they, they, you know, they want to get new or no, new audience, but they don't want to alienate their current audience either. So it is a balancing act. But, yeah, that was much more straightforward. In with three directors, which... Once again, very different directors, you know, Emma, Shannon Murphy and 
Corrie Chen and they all had their own styles and they all had their own way they wanted to do things. So once again, you do that same kind of balancing act. But yeah, three blocks, shoot each block out you know, individually, generally be at each location only once per block. So it was a much more streamlined process for sure. Nice. Yeah, get those blessings. But on the other hand, when you have these really intense and crazy kind of productions, you probably find some new ways to do things and and really it pushes you to try and, and hopefully next time you take it, you actually become possibly quicker at something or, or more efficient. Yeah, you definitely you definitely learn a lot and you kind of could you like really in the trenches and shows like that. And that was my first my first kind of proper full on full T V series that I you know started and finished myself. And you know, when you finish something like that and that was a very, very full on experience, I think probably anything going on to anything after that would have felt easier. But what it does is you kind of go, you know, I've I've had to deal with, you know, these really difficult things. I had to deal with, you know, this uh, schedule that on paper uh, doesn't look that bad if you say, oh, we've got nine days per app. But when you have to go back and forth between locations and you're jumping between blocks and all that stuff, it, for me, it became a very intense experience. And I, I mean, I did that myself as well. You know, I kind of was had blinkers on and was so focused on it and, you know, essentially dug a hole for myself for four months. So it was such an intense experience for me that I think after that, you know, I learned so much about filmmaking, but I also learned a lot about, you know, how to survive as a filmmaker and how to, you know, get through projects and still have a family and still have a life and still have your health and sanity. And so I learned a lot about that as well. So on the next one, I mean, I think I said anything would have been Asian Sisters was, was not as difficult in a lot of ways, but... I also think I learned a lot about how to manage that process better. Well, we'll cut it there, but we've got a lot more coming from Earl in the next episode. So thank you for listening and look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.